Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 5 of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. Podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. I hope you're doing well and staying safe during this COVID-19 pandemic. Got another great episode for you today. As usual, we'll start with the news around Serie A and around Napoli. Then we'll do another transfer talk, and today we're going to talk about Alan. And then in part three, we'll have our first interview of the podcast with Alex Donnell. So getting right into it, before we even get to said, yeah, I want to give you an update on what's going on around Europe. So the big news on Tuesday was French Prime Minister Edouard Philippe announced that no events would be played until September. And the French government feels that it's simply too risky to have any sporting events. And that includes the 2019-2020 Ligue 1 campaign. Now, the expectation is that that season will just be ended and we're waiting for an official statement from the league. Now, a few days ago, we reported that the Eredivisie ended its season just after its government made a similar decision to postpone sporting events until September. In the Eredivisie, they did not award a title, and that made sense because Ajax and Alkmaar are tied at the top of the table. In France, I think it would make sense to award a title. PSG is currently 12 points clear of Marseille, who's in second place. Plus, they have a game in hand with only 12 matches to go. So if they decide to end the league, I think what will be more curious to see is how they deal with promotion and relegation. We'll also see what this means for PSG. A while back, UEFA had mentioned that they may not accept clubs in next year's competitions if they don't qualify the normal way. But then more recently, they said that ending the seasons and using the current standings would count. So I suspect PSG will be entered into the group stage of next year's Champions League. It also sounds like PSG is looking for an alternate venue to play this year's matches. So we previously mentioned that European competition is scheduled to resume in August, at least that's the current plan, which means that PSG would not be allowed to play any home matches in France because of this government announcement. So supposedly the club is exploring other sites, which includes Qatar and Portugal. Now, last episode, we mentioned that FC Utrecht will be appealing the Eredivisie's decisions around ending the season and European competition. It looks like Cambour, who, if you recall, were top of the Erste Divisie, 
are also going to appeal the decision and a number of clubs are preparing to take legal action. So for everyone out there who just says, you know, just end the season, we're, we're now seeing in the Netherlands already how messy things can get if you go that route. And this doesn't even take into consideration sponsors and broadcasters who would likely be seeking refunds on money that has already been spent by the clubs. Meanwhile, the German Bundesliga seems set to resume play, possibly as soon as May 9th, pending approval from the German government. Of course, these matches would be played behind closed doors and with a number of safety measures in place, similar to those proposed by the FIGC for Serie A. In England, the intent remains to complete the seasons. With England on lockdown until May 7th, the earliest expected resumption of play is June 8th. And similarly, all of those matches would be played behind closed doors, which is not a huge deal for the Premier League, which is in year two out of three of a $10.7 billion broadcasting agreement. And three clubs have already uh, reopened their training facilities, which are Arsenal, Tottenham, and West Ham. In Spain, La Liga has been approved by the Spanish government to resume training on May 4th and group training on May 11th. The Swiss League is set to resume training on May 11th, so they can resume their leagues for June 8th. And the Portuguese Football Federation says that it will respect and wait for the decisions of the public health authorities to confirm the return of the Primera Liga. Now, the reason I mention all of those leagues is because it seems like the other countries in Europe are handling this a lot better than Italy is. One way or another, the governments are making decisions, be it suspending play until September or resuming training. But in Italy, as you might expect, there's been nothing but drama. So first, even though all 20 teams were supposedly aligned on restarting Serie A, La Repubblica is reporting that in addition to Torino and Brescia, who had previously publicly stated that the Serie A campaign should be ended, that apparently there are other clubs as well that would like the season to end now. Now, Torino and Brescia are at the bottom of the table, so of course they're going to lobby to have the season cancelled. And the opposite is happening at the top of the table. So Lazio Sporting Director Ilitare criticized the Minister of Sport, Vincenzo Sparafora, on Lazio-style radio. And Tare is taking a very narrow and I'd say selfish view of the whole situation, suggesting that Lazio are being discriminated against and questioning why Juve and Inter haven't taken a side in the debate, even though Juve has already publicly stated that they would not accept the Scudetto if the season ended. Tare also questioned why it's okay for people to go to the park when there are no controls in place there, but Serie A needs to wait until May 18th to train in a controlled environment, and I get the logic, but this was just not a good look for him. Before I get to Spadafora's response, I just want to say to all the Lazio fans out there who are crying like Ili Tare is, or like their spokesperson Arturo Diaconal is, or like Marco Parolo is, or like Claudio Lotito is, that Alkmar, who like Lazio have only two titles in the history of the club, was tied for first, not one point behind, tied for first before the Eredivisie was cancelled, and I don't see anyone over there complaining, so all you Lazio people that are crying about this need to just give it a rest. Back to the government, Spadafora responded to the criticism on his personal Facebook page of all places, acknowledging the social and economic importance of football, even though public polls suggest that Italians want the campaign ended. He also pointed out that he's trying to find a way to resume training safely, even though it would be easier to just end the season now, which would also make the scientific community happy. Spadafora also responded to politicians such as former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi, who have suggested that Spadafora is conspiring against Prime Minister Conte to end football, and he basically said that these claims are ridiculous and he's probably right about that. I don't know how anyone can criticize someone who's trying to protect the people, 
Spotafoda seems to want to resume play, but the protocols that FIGC provided are far from perfect, and that's consistent with the reports that a number of clubs were seeking clarity on uh, some of these protocols submitted by the FIGC. And apparently there are four points of disagreement between the government and FIGC. The first has to do with security, and the government feels that the number of people involved, which is about 50 to 70 people, depending on the club, is too high. Second, away matches present a greater risk, so they need to figure that part out, especially for the places that were hit harder by COVID-19. Third, the availability and costs of the tests required for this plan are not known. And the biggest concern is what to do if a player tests positive. FIGC has proposed isolating the player and testing them regularly and not allowing them to return to the squad until they have a double negative test whereas the government would want to quarantine the entire squad for two weeks. So to me though, this all sounds like it can be solved. But then today, which is Wednesday, in an interview with La Sette, Spadafora reiterated something that he said a while back, which is that the resumption of training does not guarantee a resumption of football. Now, I'm not terribly offended by that statement. This is a typical non-committal statement that you would expect from a politician. But then he went on to say that if he was the president of a football club, he'd start preparing for the new season to start in August and suggested that Italy may follow the footsteps of other countries like France and that the window of opportunity is narrowing. So I can appreciate why the FIGC and certain clubs are frustrated. They, they're getting mixed messages from the government, unlike the other European leagues who seem to be getting clear direction, which in some cases is to suspend sport until the fall, but at least it's a direction. Meanwhile, as many as half of the Serie A clubs are at risk of going bankrupt, broadcaster rights still need to be resolved, and now insurance companies don't want to provide health coverage to players who have tested positive for COVID-19. Moving on to Napoli news, there's not a whole lot to report. Tutto Sport is reporting that the club and players are getting closer to a decision on wage cuts. The players' agents and lawyers are supposedly reviewing a proposal for the next four months' pay, that would see the players get paid for one and a half out of the first three months, and then the fourth month would be deferred until next year. Meanwhile, Gattuso has forfeited his pay to cover the balance of the wages of the staff uh, that had been laid off, and apparently they were still about 20% short of their normal wages. Again, great to see Gattuso doing this, but would have liked to see De Laurentiis contribute. And finally, a quick update on the Ferrara Cannavaro Foundation. That auction is now up to about 118,000 euros raised, which is excellent. Last time we mentioned that Mertens donated his Champions League jersey, which sold for 15,000 euros to a bidder called Stadio 1926. And then almost immediately after the bid closed, De Laurentiis revealed on social media that he was the mysterious Stadio 1926. Now, I don't know if this was De Laurentiis trying to get in Mertens' good book or if this was just an old guy trying to do something cool. But it kind of felt like a creepy stalker villain thwarting the hero's plans to me. And it's not like he grossly outbid the previous bid, which was 13,500 euros. So you can't even say that he just did this for charity. If you're going to do that, make a, you know, like a 50,000 euro bid, not, not 15,000, only 1,500 euros more than the, the next bid. Anyhow, that's it for the news. In part two, we'll do some transfer doc.
transfer talk, we're going to take a deep dive into the situation around Brazilian midfielder Alain Marquez Loriero, better known more simply as Alain. Things have really unraveled for him over the last year or so, and this story starts in January of last year, when Napoli rejected an offer somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 million euros from PSG because De Laurentiis had put an 80 million price tag on Alain. Now, Alain's camp recently confirmed that he was indeed furious about missing the opportunity to join a club like PSG, and as it turns out, this was a bad decision for everyone, but obviously hindsight is 2020. Since then, things have gotten worse for the Brazilian. In November, we had the mutiny and the altercation between Alan and Edo De Laurentiis in the change room. That resulted in all players being fined half of their October salaries, including Alan, who was fined about 200,000 euros. Then on January 11th, Napoli acquired Diego Deme from Leipzig. Deme made his first appearance in Serie A a week later against Fiorentina, coming off the bench to replace Alan himself. And what we didn't know at the time was that Demme wasn't just replacing Alain in that particular match, but in fact he had just taken over the starting position. Alain missed the following match against Juventus due to muscle fatigue, so Demme started in his place, and it just so happens that that was Napoli's best game of the season, defeating the champions 2-1. And from then on, Demme would be the starter. Then, to make matters worse, in mid-February, Alain was disciplined by Gattuso for a lack of effort on the training ground, or as the papers put it, for walking around too much, and we all know that Gattuso has high expectations when it comes to work ethic. As a result, Gattuso kept Alan out of the match against Cagliari. So when you consider the bad blood between the player and the owner, and the fact that Alan has been relegated to the bench behind Diego Demme, the question is not will Alan be sold, it's to whom and for how much. Now two clubs seem to be most interested in him at the moment, one of those clubs is Everton, where Alain would be reunited with Carlo Ancelotti. And supposedly Ancelotti would like to bring Lozano as well. And Everton would be willing to swap Moise Kane. Now, I don't see that happening. We've already heard the club say that they want to give Lozano another year, if not only to restore his value. Also, the club has had enough drama this season, so they don't need to add more with Moise Kane and his coronavirus parties. The other club is PSG, who's remained interested since their original offer when they tried to buy him in January 2019, and this makes the most sense to me for a number of reasons. First, Alain is essentially the same player they wanted a year and a half ago. He's had some minor knocks, but no major injuries. Second, even though he's a bit older now, he just turned 29 a few months ago, and the asking price could be half of the original asking price of 80 million euros. Third, PSG have a gap they need to fill. When their offer for Alain was rejected originally, they signed Roma's Leandro Paredes, who hasn't really worked out, so they've been rotating between Marco Verratti, 30-year-old Idris Gay, 17-year-old Tange Kouassi, and Marquinhos, who's actually a defender. At the end of the day, I expect Napoli to sell a land for around 40 million euros. At this point, I'd even take 35 million for him. Napoli acquired a land from Udinese in 2015 for 11 million euros, so like Koulibaly, that entire amount would be reported as a gain. And you can't let a 40 million euro player rot away on the bench. We still have Loboca on the bench as well to back up Deme, and Loboca needs more playing time as well. So that's it for part two. In part three, we'll talk to our first special guest.
Okay, so I'm really excited to introduce our first guest to the podcast. He's the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Calcio Connection, with my good friend Jerry Mancini. He also does work for Five Reason Sports, and he's a huge Inter fan, but we're not going to hold that against him. Of course, I'm talking about Alex Dono. Alex, welcome to Fortsanopoli. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad you're not holding the Inter stuff against me. That means a lot. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Actually, that's the reason why I wanted to bring you on the pod, because at the moment, there are quite a few connections between Napoli and Inter. So even though this is a Napoli podcast, I do like to, or what I want to do at least, is to bring on uh, guests that have expertise on other teams, especially when they're playing. Now, we're not playing any games now, but like I said, there are connections. So the first one that I do want to talk about is Dries Mertens, who's been heavily linked to Inter. So the question I have for you is, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being impossible and 10 being a guarantee, how likely do you think that Mertens signs with Inter? I think I'd go 6 out of 10, uh, meaning certainly not a slam dunk, but it, it seems more likely than not for a couple of reasons. Um you know, obviously, it looks like his contract talks with Napoli are at a bit of a standstill, and and maybe Inter would be willing to offer him a raise. I, one of the reasons why I think it, it's very possible that we see Martins at Inter on on a Bosman transfer this summer is that uh, he's been on Conte's radar for most of the season. I mean, going back months, it, it, that that's been a contract that they've been monitoring, and you know, as we've seen time and time again, wherever he's been, if if there's a player that Conte really wants, uh, he tends to put a lot of pressure on the club directors to get him his man. So I think there's going to be a push there to bring in Mertens. Uh, there are a couple of X factors as to why I'm at you know a 6 out of 10 and not an 8 out of 10. Obviously, the situation with Napoli, if something changes there, like you know if they were to come close to matching Inter's offer or match Inter's offer directly, I think he'd probably stay there. I don't think he wants to leave Napoli just for the sake of leaving there. And yeah, I also wonder uh, what other clubs could become X factors here. I've been seeing a lot of links the last couple of days, Joe, with Chelsea. Um, obviously, anytime you see British tabloid reports, you take it with a grain of salt. But I'm seeing some stuff about how, you know, Frank Lampard has been, you know, contacting him pretty much every day, really wanting to bring him to that club. So uh, he could have even options outside of Italy. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I, I think he would be a, a good profile to replace Alexis Sanchez, who, you know, is kind of the the veteran striker right now at Inter, but has, you know, dealt with injury issues as he often does. And uh, I, he's very unlikely to be redeemed by the club. They currently have him on loan from Manchester United. And uh, another thing that I look for in, I'm curious to see what Inter's offer to Martins would look like, because I, I, I'm sure they're they're willing to offer him a substantial raise salary-wise to what he's making right now. But the number of years on the contract, I think, is a big question mark. Uh, I saw a report that they would be willing to offer him a three-year contract, which, as an Interista, I don't think that's the best idea to offer someone who's already 32 years old a three-year contract. But if that were to be the offer, three years at a, at a substantial raise, uh, that may make it very hard for him to say no. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And uh, your answer is actually pretty similar to to my take on Mertens, which, although I'm taking it from from a Napoli standpoint, which is that because I think the, the offer would be similar, I don't know that Inter can pay him that much more than what Napoli is willing to pay him to lure him away because he does have a, a certain affinity and fondness for that city and that club. 
But the the term is certainly interesting. I think Napoli was looking at two years. So if he could get a third year from Inter, that might be something that lures him over. But uh, that's definitely something that we'll be keeping our eyes on. But you kind of addressed this in in your answer. But hypothetically speaking, if if Mertens did sign with Inter, how do you think he would fit with that squad? I think the first thing, uh, it, it, this would be one of the one of the reasons I think he could be a really good fit at Inter is his relationship with Romelu Lukaku. Uh, they're very close both on and off the pitch. You know, being uh, teammates with Belgium and being personal friends, uh, I think that that could obviously make his learning curve into Inter a pretty short one. And not to mention that. Um, I, I think it's always good when you're bringing in a new striker or a veteran striker in his case, uh, someone who's already familiar with Serie A. You know, obviously he's, you know, he's faced all of these opponents before in the Napoli shirt, so he wouldn't have to make the sort of adjustments that you knew an Alexis Sanchez would have to make when you brought him in. And so, you know, as far as a, a potential partnership with Lukaku or, you know, maybe he only occasionally plays with Lukaku because he might be, you know, Inter's third striker or he could be Inter's second striker. So he'd either be, you know, a bench guy, a fill-in starter or, you know, potentially a full-time starter. I, I think he would actually fit pretty well. And 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 like you said, uh, addressing it earlier, uh, this is certainly a profile that Conte has been looking at for the last several months. So uh, clearly he sees Martins as being a guy who can fit his formation. Yeah, absolutely. That that's the one thing that worries me about Mertens is that that link that he has with Lukaku. I think I read that I don't know how many uh, international matches they've played together with Belgium, but they've both been successful. So I think I think Mertens has nine goals and Lukaku fourteen, something like that. So they they have the chemistry already. Um, one thing that I think may influence whether he makes a move over there and whether. Inter decides to to try really hard to bring him in is whether or not they sell Lautaro Martinez. So even though it's not really a Napoli question as as an Interista and someone who would be uh, looking to bring Mertens in if Inter sold Lautaro, how do you think uh, do you think that Inter will actually sell him? Uh, I, I think there's a, a decent chance they sell him. And if they sell him, it would be Barcelona. I, I don't really see anybody else jumping in. I think it's either Barcelona or Inter for him. Uh, obviously, it, it would be very difficult for Inter to keep him away from going to a squad like Barca who could triple or quadruple his wages with no problem. And you would think they would have the financial needs to give Inter a good sum and they'd make a great plus Valenza off of that. So all this to say... Uh, Inter certainly is not going out of their way to shop or sell Latara Martinez. They don't have, you know, a pressing financial need, you know, to make revenue off of his sale. I think the only way they would sell him is if, you know, he tells the club directors and the CEO Marotta straight up, uh, you know, guys, Barcelona is where I want to be. So please find a way to make this happen. I think it would be really the will of the player would be the only thing that can take him away. Uh, I think a, a big thing that a couple of factors with Latara that I look out for um I don't know how concrete it really is that he's desperate to make this Barcelona switch because we've seen reports in both directions. Um, you know, obviously Messi being there, uh, you know, his you know teammate with Argentina and a, and a guy, you know, he he is probably an idol to him uh, could certainly help sway him going over to Barcelona. But you see some reports that 
you know, he's desperate to go to Barca. Other reports that he respects Barca, but he's happy at Inter. I think the closer we get to the transfer window, you know, the more clear what the truth is uh, is going to become, you know, whether it's BS or whether there's a lot of substance to this. And, you know, listen, obviously with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's going to affect the way even big clubs spend when it comes to mega transfers. You know, maybe a club like Barca would be less affected by that than, you know, the Inters and, and the Napolis of the world. So maybe they could still make a big offer. But uh, I, I think that their final offer could end up being a substantial amount of cash plus a player like potentially, you know, 90 million euros plus Arturo Vidal, maybe what Inter demands for that. You know, you see Antoine Griezmann's name thrown around, but I don't know how realistic that would be. You know, maybe you know, Griezmann on loan with an option to buy is what some people say, but I'm not convinced by that. I think Griezmann may not end up being part of this negotiation, but I, I, I think uh, any Interista is really starting to sort of mentally prepare for the idea that Latara Martinez won't be on the squad next season because when Messi and Barcelona come calling, it can be pretty hard to say no. Yeah, well, certainly from a, I, I hope Inter don't sell Lautaro for a couple of reasons. One, the one we just mentioned with Mertens, I think they'd be more interested in Mertens if they sold Lautaro. But also, I think it's just better for Serie A as a whole to maintain some of these high-level uh, talents and keep them in the league and it just makes the league more competitive and more appealing to watch but moving on from some players the other topic that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit was the Coppa Italia now we've heard rumors that when football returns that one of the first matches that will be played is the Coppa Italia semifinals particularly the second leg of Napoli versus Inter uh, which would be played at the San Paolo so before we look ahead to the second leg I'm going to test your memory a little bit and ask for your thoughts on the first leg and it's perfectly fine if your answers. I, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I, I remember a bit. Um, that first leg, which was uh, a Napoli one uh, nil victory at the San Siro, it, it was it was very frustrating, Joe, from an Inter perspective. Um, and one of the big reasons why it was so frustrating was that was I think four days after Inter's thrilling comeback in the Milan derby. So I, I think a lot of you know where the Inter scored four goals in the second half to win that one four to two against Milan and and there was a big there was a big high from that and maybe there was also a bit of a hangover from that because uh, they looked very very kind of indecisive in the final third against Napoli and it just it wasn't really a performance uh, on your home field to be that proud of. I give Napoli a lot of credit because I thought they played very well in that match specifically defensively because Inter did create. A handful of decent scoring chances, especially like in the final minutes when they were chasing a little bit. Uh, Alexis Sanchez came on late and he had kind of a chance to score, but he couldn't really pull the trigger on the shot. And uh, uh, Danilo D'Ambrosio had a good chance that was saved by Ospina late. So uh, it was a little bit disappointing that the goal never came in that match. Uh, but something I'll, I'll never forget, and, and I'm sure you remember this well, Joe, was the goal that Fabian Ruiz scored. I mean, it was I, I would like to say that, you know, that would have been different if Handanovic had been in net instead of Daniele Padelli. But it probably wouldn't have been any different because that was just an unbelievable, you know, curler from the edge of the area. That was just a beautiful goal. So I, I think what it really came down to for me was. Uh, you know, Napoli was clinical with with a chance to score and, and Inter really wasn't. And it, it left a bitter taste in my mouth because it was I think it was the Thursday after the Milan Derby win on a Sunday. So I just thought, man, I, I thought you'd play better coming off an emotional performance like that. But they Inter just didn't play very well in that game. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the, the Fabian goal because 
that was literally the only thing I remembered about this match. So I actually went back and rewatched it. And then I realized why I didn't remember the rest of the match. Because the first half was more the clubs seemed like they were just kind of feeling each other out like a like boxers in a boxing match. Nothing really happened in the first half. And then in the second half, Napoli pretty much went into pure defensive mode and it was just wave after wave of uh, Inter attacks. They didn't create too many really dangerous attacks, but it was, as a, a Napoli fan, it was pretty stressful to watch. And, and from Napoli's por- uh, point of view, this was one of the first games that we saw Gattuso use this kind of defensive style. And then we saw it again, obviously, in the Champions League against Barcelona. But this was the first time where I, I really, what stood out to me in the match was the contrast in styles between Conte and Gattuso, where Gattuso was content, it seemed, to, to finish with a nil-nil draw and try to score on the counterattack, which fortunately they did, whereas Conte was going after it. And, and actually, I think he even got a yellow card in this match. He did, yeah. <laughs> Just the, the frustration of trying to penetrate that defense, which I think to the maybe the casual viewer, it's it's probably not the most entertaining style to watch. But especially for me as someone who back in the day played defense, you, there, I do have a certain appreciation for the, the way they play and, and how structured they were as a defensive unit. Um, looking forward to the second leg, now it's at least a month away. So again, you might not have too much to say about it, but I'm curious to know if you've thought about the second leg and, and how that might go. It's tough to really handicap the second leg. I mean, on the one hand, uh, one of the first thoughts that I had, and then I realized how foolish it was, was that, hey, you know, Inter had recent success winning at the San Paolo. But then I thought, well, there's no fans there anyway, because there's no way there's going to be fans at this game. Assuming the game happens about a month from now, it's going to be in an empty stadium for sure. So I guess I guess home field still counts for a little bit because it's the grounds you're comfortable on. But I think it's a little bit of a wash when you're playing in an empty park. So I don't know how much that means. Um, other than that, I think it's really tough because, and and this goes for both teams, why it's so hard to predict on either side with, you know, players having been away from football uh, for you know a couple of months in this hiatus and in this lockdown, um, you know, certainly a, a positive for Inter will be that Handanovic is, uh, you know, obviously going to be back in net. Uh, he wasn't there for the first leg for Inter. So, you know, any time his backup Padelli is in there, he's just a huge, huge liability. So Handanovic being healthy is a good thing. I also really hope that, you know, Stefano Sensi can be back in some kind of form, even if he doesn't necessarily start the match. He could be an impact sub. Um, I got a little bit worried the other day when I saw his videos on on Snapchat or Instagram with his girlfriend who significantly seems to be taller and probably heavier than he is because he's a very very tiny man like standing on his back while he's doing push-ups for a guy who gets hurt so much like Stefano Sensi does I don't know if that's a really smart recreational activity uh but I'm also going to be really interested to see after this break how Conte deploys Christian Eriksen because you know before the hiatus uh he just hadn't really Conte hadn't really seemed to figure out how he wanted to use Erickson. Uh, I think he only started maybe one match uh, before the hiatus, and you know he couldn't really seem to figure out how to how to put that square peg in the round hole. So maybe he's come up with a, a more decisive plan for that. But outside from that, I think every fan is going to have to go into these first couple of games after the hiatus and say we really don't know what version of our squad is going to show up because it's been so long. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think I actually mentioned this on, on your uh, podcast, which was that 
I don't think this is going to feel like a season is resuming when we go back. I think it's going to feel more like the start of a, a brand new season, albeit a very short one. And and like any season, when you the first game, you really you, you don't know how what you've done in training, in this case individually at, at home, and then maybe for a couple of weeks as a group, is going to translate on the pitch. One thing I, I do think that Inter might benefit from is that the last match they played, and I'm sorry to bring this up, is that the loss to Juventus, which, you know, many people think kind of eliminated them from the Scudetto race. And so I think mentally that would have been a tough one to overcome. But now, you know, they've had plenty of time to get over that. And you mentioned the the physical side of things and recovering from injuries. And then on the flip side, Napoli had quite a bit of momentum going. They, they had seven wins and a draw in their last nine matches in all competitions. And now all of that momentum that they had built up is gone they they have you know some benefits of recovering from injuries like Koulibaly as well but I think as a whole Inter probably comes out a bit better off after this break so for my last question I'm going to move away from Calcio for a little bit now on your podcast uh, Calcio Connection you and Jerry typically end by talking about your quarantine chronicles and I know that's something that kept you busy last week was the NFL draft and the work you do with five reasons sports and I also know that you live in Miami, Florida. So that's a lot of background for what's actually a pretty simple question, <laughs> which is how happy are you that the Dolphins got their guy to a... So thrilled, man, because I, I thought the Dolphins were going to overthink it. Um, Tua Tungavailoa comes with a little bit of risk because he had some injuries at Alabama and you know, most recently the hip injury that ended his season in his final year in college. So some people were concerned maybe, you know, you're drafting a guy who could be an injury liability, but... When Tua was healthy at Bama, which was most of his career, I think he only missed like five games his entire career uh, in, in college football. Really, really talented, dynamic quarterback. I mean, with left-handed and the mobility he has, he, he kind of reminds you of like a, a prime Steve Young from way back in the day. Uh, he's going to end up being, you know, very potentially the most dynamic quarterback the Dolphins have had since Dan Marino, who retired 20 years ago at this point. And so uh, I, I'm really, really happy that. Tua was able to fall to the Dolphins who drafted at number five because uh, people weren't sure if if the fifth pick would be enough, if they would have to maybe trade up to get a quarterback like that. And they didn't have to. They just ended up being able to get him at number five. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really pleased. And I, I hope it works out because uh, I really thought the Dolphins would overthink it and maybe not draft him because of the risk. And I'm happy they took the risk. Yeah, no, I, I hope it works out for the Dolphins and and for you, because it seemed like at the beginning of the season, everyone was hating on the Dolphins for tanking on purpose to try to get them. And then somewhere mid-season, it seemed like they actually started trying their best to win, or maybe they were the whole time and things started clicking a little bit, which made you think, oh, now they're not going to get him. And so I almost feel like they got rewarded for uh, for trying to win rather than just tanking to get to get the guy in the draft. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, because before the season started last year in 2019, you know, it was like a slogan down in Miami. It was sort of half sarcastic, but half serious tank for Tua. Like everyone kept saying <laughs> tank for Tua, you know, lose all your games because they thought Tua would be the number one overall pick. You know, nobody knew that Joe Burrow would come out of nowhere and be the number one quarterback. But everyone down here kept saying tank for Tua. And then when they ended up winning five games, a lot of people were complaining, oh, you won way too much. You're not going to get your quarterback so it's like poetic justice. And it was yeah. like you said, it's like the universe rewarded the Dolphins that 
you know, they, they did actually play well, pretty well in the second half of the year anyway, and won five games and they still ended up getting their guy. So hopefully, hopefully less people, you know, think about tanking in the future. Cause I, I was never a huge fan of the tanking idea. Yeah, I agree. And it'll give Dolphins fans something to cheer about other than the, uh, the Super Bowl that you guys seem to host like every other year. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I, think, I, think we, I think we might have another one in like three or four years. So hopefully Tua can play in that one with the Dolphins. Yeah, yeah I hope so. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast, Alex. I, I really can't thank you enough. Um, hopefully we can chat again once we get closer to that second leg of the uh, Coppa Italia. But before I let you go, why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, you can find uh, my personal Twitter account, which keeps you pretty good, pretty well updated on what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. You know, well, quarantine has us pretty bored, uh, but it's Alex Dono, Dono spelled D-O-N-N-O. You can also follow uh, the account of the show that Jerry Mancini and I do. You mentioned it, the Calcio Connection. Uh, our Twitter handle there is at CalcioConPod. So you can, you know, stay updated on our latest episodes. And, you know, you hear Joe on our pod frequently. He's nice enough to join us pretty often. I think he's the only guy that we've had on three times. So he's like a semi-regular on our show. So, yeah, you can find pretty much everything there at my account and at the CalchoCon pod account. Thanks so much, Joe. So that's going to do it for episode five. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to focus on anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. Also, if you're looking for some reading material, you can find my articles at worldfootballindex.com. We'll talk to you guys again in a few days, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Center. Network.